Have you ever focused on one investment that has lost money while ignoring your other investments? Or maybe sold winning investments instead of the losers just so you didn't have to accept the loss? How do you behave when it comes to decision making? Do you spend a long time thinking over every single decision? And are you sometimes afraid of making the wrong decision? Answers to these questions can help you understand the concept of loss aversion and analysis paralysis and how it influences your finances. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. And I'm your amazing co-host, Jimmy. And Turner. welcome back to the show. You have your last name. Oh, uh, you know, I just didn't know what to do there. <laughs> welcome first back doing to the it. show. In our second show, Jimmy, TPP, the physician philosopher. I got to figure out which one I'm going to call you. We're back at I go by many names. our Wednesday segment. And we're going to be discussing the concepts of loss aversion and analysis paralysis. You may have heard the saying of analysis paralysis, but many of you haven't heard about loss aversion, and that's okay. These two concepts play a huge role in our finances, how we view money, our investments, and our relationships. Being aware of them, understanding how they influence our decision-making will make you smarter and more in control of your finances too. But before we jump in, it is time for that important disclaimer. And I really want you guys to become superstars when it comes to understanding your finances. But please do not mistake what we say here as advice. I want you to use this as an educational tool that provides general hints. I only give advice to clients who I actually work with and that I know something about, and I'm guessing you're not one of them. Honestly, I don't think you should take advice from anyone on the internet who doesn't know you or your situation. If you're looking for an advisor to help you and walk with you on your journey, go to physicianwealthservices.com and we can definitely talk about that. But until then, talk to your attorney, your CPA, or your fee-only financial advisor to obtain that specific advice. Okay. Jimmy, enough of the boring stuff. Let's get going. To continue on the idea of framing from last Wednesday's show, we really wanted to relate it to our finances. And we're going to start off by let's talk about loss aversion. Yeah. So the the idea here is kind of interesting. So believe it or not, you don't view losses and gains the same way. In fact, uh, studies have shown that you hate losses about twice as much as you enjoy gains. And you can imagine that has a profound impact on your financial decisions, right? Well, yeah, it makes sense. And that's that's why they've done some of those studies that said, basically, if you were to quote unquote gamble, the mm-hmm. return, the expectation that if you were to make money or win needs to be over two times more than the loss, right? Because that was that pain threshold, that pain point that as humans, we hate to lose. Now, some more than others. My son freaks out when he loses literally anything and it has mm. nothing to do with money. But the idea of loss aversion not only applies to everyday life, but really specifically to our finances and even politics. And we're not going to get political in the show because I don't even know Aww. where that would go. I am totally not political, by the way. But You're apolitical, no politics? Sure. But as humans, <laughs> we tend to get this idea in our head And then we become really stubborn about it and everyone's stubborn about it because we think of one way and we tend to value our idea a little bit more than we would value ideas of others. And I think it again comes back to 
a lot of human psychology, but really around loss aversion. So do you have any other examples maybe of loss aversion that people can start to relate and connect what it actually is? Yeah, sure. So I've got some concrete examples from my own life, actually. I recently oh, bought, <laughs> I recently sold my much beloved Chevy SS. Uh, I actually missed driving that car and I bought a, a truck. And so there are lots of reasons, some of them irrational that went into buying that. Either way, as a part of doing that, I had to sell my car. And this is a car that I loved. So I wasn't selling my car because I no longer liked it. I mean, this thing was amazing. It was, you know, a V8 rear-wheel drive, naturally aspirated sedan, had a stick. My kids loved it. It was really fun to just drive. Clearly, Jimmy's a car guy. I'm a car guy. I buy new cars. Let it be known. But yeah, so my Chevy SS, which I ordered from Australia, I might add. It came from Adelaide, Australia. You know, half the White Coat Network is just dying right now, right? They're like, oh, oh it's great. A you new know, car. I, Ugh, yeah. My heart. I have, I, I have a different view on money. I'm of taking care of the big picture stuff and we're, we're going to be financially independent in our early to mid 40s. I could buy a car. But anyway, yeah. So I love my car. But then when I went to sell it, because I had all those attachments to it, I actually thought that my car was worth more to me than it probably was to someone else. And so it was really hard for me to be objective. And I used you know tools to figure out what I should sell the car for. But that actually has a name to it. When you think that the stuff that you own is worth more than it really is in the market, it's called the endowment effect. And the entire premise or basis behind that is that people hate losing things. And so this is a, it's a form of loss aversion. And I experienced it recently when I, I traded my amazing car in for a very practical truck. Yeah. And in, in going back to you know what you own and what you invest in, people are willing to take more risk to avoid a loss mm. than to achieve a gain. Which How do you mean? It's crazy. So they're willing to essentially do something that would prevent them from feeling bad, which let's call this a loss. Okay. Then in order to say, well, I'll take the same amount of risk to feel good. Mm. And, and that to me blows my mind because I don't think that way, but I know deep down I'm wired that way. I, th- I really, I mean, I, I, I think really so. that's so much in real life. So I remember when I was in the emergency department in, um, my intern year and I'd built putting a central line in to be such this, such a big procedure. Like it was such a big deal to put a central line in somebody. And the very first time that I ever got a chance to do it, I put a central line in a patient. I threaded the wire and I was going to take everything out and leave the wire in like you're supposed to, after you find the, the big vein that you're trying to go into. And when I pulled the stuff out and I was supposed to leave the wire, I just pulled it all out. I just yanked it all out. I mean, I, and so the, <laughs> the patient now has a hematoma where I was trying to put a catheter. I had never done it before. And so Either way, I thought about that mistake for like, I mean, two weeks. It was such a big deal. And I, I could totally relate to like things not going badly. Now, the first time I put a central line in and it went well, like I thought about that for like 30 minutes. I was like, yeah, that was great. But, but the mistake that I made, the loss that I had when I, you know, potentially, you know, screwed up a procedure, man, that, that was long lasting for me. So I, I can relate to this message in so many areas of my life. So I'm curious, how long ago was that? Oh, intern year. 2012, so okay. seven years ago. So you're still thinking about it seven years ago. Can yes, you, I could. Can you really remember your first one? Like they did went well. No, so that's the amazing part. So you, you know this about me, Ryan. So my nickname at work is Dory because I actually have a terrible memory, right? Like the fish. I really want to be just keep swimming. Yeah, yeah. So my to do list is called just keep swimming. I mean that's that's me, and I still remember that story because it hurt so bad, and I I just remember feeling like an absolute idiot, and my upper level saying, "Well, you'll never do that again." I mean, it just this wasn't a good. It wasn't like, a good. Do what? I already forgot. Yeah. You're like, ah, that'd be great if I had a short memory for the bad stuff. Yeah. That doesn't work that way, my friend. Mm-mm. But that also means that if you've ever sent Jimmy an email and he didn't respond, 
nag me, send me another, unless you're a uh, advertiser or a sponsor that wants to sell like, like Bitcoin or gold. I get those sometimes. I'm like, they send me emails if I don't want them. Well, I get a lot of emails that I don't want, but Mm, thankfully not a lot of Bitcoin people. So I honestly go back and be like, do you understand what it is? Because if you don't, like you shouldn't be investing or buying this or pitching this to people. Hey, get off the other topic. But okay, so what else do we have on on loss aversion? Where where else do you want to go with this? So uh, I'll give you another example. So if you buy a ticket to a sporting event or to a concert or to anything, and let's say that you are suddenly upon the date that the concert or, or the sporting event's gonna gonna come up, and you've been looking forward to this for a really long time, and a blizzard comes through the town. It's the worst blizzard that's ever hit your city. We're still going to the game because you bought the ticket. Yep, you're still going to the game because you have money, quote unquote, invested in it, even though that money was probably spent three months ago and is gone. So you should make the decision about whether your safety and your welfare is more important than going to a sporting event. But because you bought a ticket, it actually makes you more likely to go to the sporting event in bad weather because you're afraid of losing the money that's already gone anyway. It's not coming back to your pocket. So that's called a sunk cost fallacy. Uh, and, and that's a common example of a loss aversion in, in, in personal finance. And it impacts your, your daily life, obviously, too. Yeah. I had to look this one up because I couldn't remember the exact name. It's called the status quo bias. And it, it was basically that, you know, people are essentially resistant to change. And now we know this from a high level and it's, I think, pretty common sense that like we don't like as humans change, especially mm-hmm. some people who are very regimented and like their tasks, their to-do list, their, their thing. It's a borderline almost OCD, but everyone has it even if you're not that person. Yeah. And as we were thinking about this show and how we were going to be framing and talking to these things, I thought, you know. I hear this a lot is that we tend to stick with things that we're okay with unless there's truly a compelling reason to make the switch. And I talk about this in, in relation to like your phone bill, right? <laughs> or your auto insurance. Right? Yeah. These are things that like my auto insurance, and I've talked about this a ton of times, like it just kept slowly increasing, slowly increasing, slowly increasing. And when we moved back to California, I was like, finally, I'm just going to not be a hypocrite and I'm going to re-quote out a bunch of places and end up saving a ton of money. But it was I was already in the act of changing something. I just didn't voluntarily be like, you know what, Jimmy, I woke up today and I was like, I'm changing my auto coverage. That just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. But you know, I think I had a similar experience actually switching cell phone companies. I got mad at Verizon for some reason and then started looking around and went to Google Fi and apparently where I live, that uh, network doesn't work. So I started having a situation where my phone would amazingly, like I could send and receive texts, but if you called me, I wouldn't even know that you called. And in fact, if you didn't leave me a voicemail, like the phone wouldn't even register a missed call. And so obviously when I'm on call, speaking of calls, when I'm on call and I need to get phone calls from my residents about patients and need to come into the hospital, potentially, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I had to switch back to Verizon, even though I wasn't happy with them, but it did require something happening. I think that they increased our bill or, you know, something happened, but yeah, I know we've had similar experiences. That's crazy. So I switched to Google Fi. And now I actually get coverage in my house. So Google Fi is like, it takes three networks. It's Sprint, T-Mobile, and US Cellular. Yeah. So don't switch to any of those because it takes the strongest of the three and that's what it gives you for that. The difference between San Diego and Winston-Salem. Oh, there's there's a lot of differences. I'm just saying. (laughs) Mine's much cheaper. Yeah, that's totally, totally true. The one other piece I want to talk about with 
you know, loss aversion was, is another example that I read and I, I just thought was fascinating. So in a study is they basically said consumers were asked to either build up a pizza by adding ingredients, you know, adding your sausage or pepperoni or whatever, or to scale down from a fully loaded pizza by removing ingredients and consistent with loss aversion and the thought of it, consumers in the subtractive condition ended up with pizzas that had significantly more ingredients than those in the additive condition that it, it I mean, just it's literally everywhere. It's in everything. Mm. It is truly wired. I think it's just such fascinating stuff to talk about this. Yeah, I just get a Hawaiian every time. It's great. It's a creature of habit. Yeah. You there's know, some why, people that are like, why change put, it if there's not a good reason? We just talked about this. Well, I'm just, I You just gave some people out there. Cause some people are like, you know how we get stuck in our ways and it's like my idea is yeah. better than this idea. And all, for some reason, pineapple on a pizza is that for people. Mm. Have you experienced so that? I, I just, it's delicious. I like pineapple on a pizza and now half our listeners just dropped out. No, it's all right. I don't like it. It's totally cool, it's right. but it's maybe, funny. Maybe you're like a, a veggie supreme kind of person. I don't know. I'm boring. I, I like cheese mm. the most. I'm with my yeah. kids on this one. So, all right. So now let's switch over Jimmy to analysis paralysis. And okay. I think a lot of people have heard this saying before, right? Yeah. And it's, it's the idea that you take in all this information and then it becomes information overload and then you just kind of freeze in your tracks. And I'm praying that everyone listening does not get that by this show. Right? Yeah, I'm no. really, I'm really hoping that we cover, you know, I look at it as like we're, you know, we go five feet down a mile long. We want to cover yeah. as much as we can, but not in that super granular detail that would cause you to be like, what is he talking about? Yeah. And I think that I have the same message on the physician philosopher. I try to teach people, you know, the 20% of personal finance they need to know to get 80% of the results. And it sounds like I a book the, I read. Yeah, it's great. You should totally buy it on Amazon. It's fantastic. I think it has a five-star review. In fact, I think I was the only five-star. No, I'm just kidding. No, there's like, there's like six know. of us. There's, there's at least more than one. <laughs> but uh, uh, just yeah, kidding. that's his book for everyone who doesn't know. What's the actual title so they can actually read this book? Because I actually so, really liked it. It's the Physician Philosopher's Guide to Personal Finance. There you go. All right. Yeah. But yeah, so analysis paralysis, it's, uh, it's a true thing. I mean, y- you may not know this about yourself, but most people don't like options. And that sounds strange because when you think about it, you're like, of course I do. I love options. I, I love having choices and the ability to choose what, what I want, but it's actually not true at all. And if you think about any conversation between most married couples or people in a you know significant relationship, they're like, where are you going to go to for dinner? When you have like 30 choices, right? People can't make, make a decision. And they've actually looked at this in psychology literature too, where they, they took, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting example, actually. So they called it jam. It's like peanut butter and jelly jam. You know, like what you put on your sandwich. All right. Yeah. Okay. Do you peanut butter and jelly, Ryan? I, I do, but uh, my son eats it every morning for breakfast. So oh, I, for I, make breakfast. A, I make a lot of food. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I have good eaters. Sometimes they're picky eaters. And breakfast, mm. they are very picky. They want the that, same exact thing every morning. That's funny. See, my, my little boy likes peanut butter and jelly, but he he doesn't care about it for breakfast, but he wants it cut with like certain shapes. I really like these sandwich-shaped oh, cutters. Thankfully, likes, I he likes dinosaurs, dinosaurs and trains. trains. I he's thankfully like, broke He's like that. six brutal anyway they did an experiment on jam and i think around 2000 and two psychologists looked at this and said i wonder what people like more do they want more options or less so they at the same upscale market had two different displays one display had six different kinds of jam that they were going to sell and the other one had 24 
So, you know, the first one you might imagine was some stuff that was simple, you know, strawberry, grape, blackberry. I mean, it's not, not too complicated stuff. And the other 24 had like extravagant, lots of options. And what they found was pretty interesting. So the larger display attracted more people. About 60% of the people that came into the store visited the big display, the one that had 24 in it. And only about 40% visited the one that had six. But really where, where the rubber meets the road on this one is that the, the display with 24 varieties, only 3% of the people that came into the store purchased any of the jam. And the one that only had six options, 30% of people that stopped by bought it. So they actually had a substantially higher conversion rate on their sales because there wasn't as much choice. People didn't sit there and say, well, I, I don't know. I like, I like 17 of the 24 flavors. What do I do? They said, oh, I like strawberry and they bought the strawberry. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing given that it was in the same location. They switched them out several times in a day to make sure they had similar customers and stuff. But we apparently don't like choice. That's fascinating. So what we're saying here is 50% more people viewed the 24 display, but they had 10 times more sales mm. on the six display. Like yep. if that doesn't prove analysis paralysis, I don't know what, it, and it's jam. It's not like we're talking anything overly complicated, right? Yeah. We're talking about a flavor for your sandwich. Yeah. So if you can imagine if you are a beginner in personal finance and someone says, Hey, you need to save money and invest it in the market. And they go and look and there's, you know, 2,500 different, I mean, much, much less individual securities. I think there's like 2,500 funds, like mutual funds that exist. They're like, what, what do I choose? Like you can't pick 24 jars of jam. Like, how are you going to pick which, which fund to invest in? Where do you even get started? So they just don't, a lot of people just stop there and say, I'm not going to do this because it's too complicated. Yeah. We've seen it several times where there's been contributions that go in, but they don't pick a fund. They go in, they, they get to the point and they're like, I don't know what to do. And they'll leave it. And then they're investing this money, but it's, they think Staying they're in the settlement fund, but it's sitting in the money market. That's it. Mm. And it's not doing anything. It's not invested anywhere. And the common thing that we hear is, well, there was so much there. I didn't know what to do and I didn't have time. And I mean, I get it. Busy physicians, time is relevant. And also you don't, no one likes feeling dumb, right? If you get there and you're like, I have no idea what half this even means. Is this English? You know, it's not very motivating. But when you look at it, even if you do know what's going on, you have 50 choices, yeah. it's hard to narrow it down. Well, and we, and we don't get any of this stuff in medical school, right? Financial literacy in physicians is horrifically bad. That's why it's uh, your financial residency, bud. Yeah, I know. I love this but show. That's it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, until this stuff is 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 taught and heard by people and it kind of, kind of becomes something they understand, uh, they don't know what to do and they get analysis paralysis. But thankfully through blogs, websites, personal finance curriculums, you know, podcasts, like there, there are multiple ways to, to learn this stuff now. And it doesn't have to be complicated. I think that's a take home message is that you can avoid the analysis paralysis if you just find a way to make it simple. Yep. The KISS strategy, keep it simple, stupid, right? Mm. It's, it's there now. I don't mean to call anyone stupid. That's just the acronym. But Thanks. The, are you calling me names again? I mean, Dory, it's okay. But where we're at oh, is keep it simple, right? And so we talk a lot on, you know, banking structure. Don't have five banks. That makes no sense, like yeah. at all, unless you've got 250K in an account and you know you still have another 2 million that's sitting in cash. I'd argue that you're not investing correctly at uh, in, in, in one side, but the other one, like you still don't need multiple banks to go do these things, mm. right? So don't make this overly complicated. Now I can understand you have a mortgage through a company and they force you to use their bank and the rest of their banking products stink. Totally get it. Jimmy's raising yeah. his hand. Uh, totally me. Yeah. 
<laughs> told that that is that is perfectly fine. But what you don't need is to have, and I've I've seen you know someone using three online banks. Why? Mm. They if they have a high yield savings and they've got good checking and you're not paying All any right. fees, pick one. I'll pitch an idea. Just I, I have I have three banks, right? Oh, I probably man. need to. Well, you're probably this. testing this. Are you testing? Because oh yeah, it's ABC testing. That's what okay. it is for for like five years. Okay, for five years. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Yeah. So I have my uh, my personal bank. I've got my uh, business bank for for the physician philosopher, and then I just have the one for the mortgage. And the only thing that the mortgage does is the mortgage. Um, but uh, and I might. You know, I think I have to keep that. I don't really have a choice there. But the the personal bank didn't provide as good small business stuff as the the other bank did. So I have I have technically two banks, even if you exclude my mortgage. Yeah, I, I think two banks is okay because you're running a business. Right? Sure. I'm I'm more reverencing people who have five banks and it you know they're W two and they're all personal and there's no reason to have it spread out across the board. Now I have to have two banks: one for business, we use Chase, yeah. and the other one we're using Ally. Now I yeah. like to test things, so my wife gets super annoyed because so I'm like, "Honey, you gotta make sure you have access to this." She goes, "Another bank?" I'm like, "Yes, just humor me for a month. That's fine." But I'm doing it truly to test. I'm not doing it because I I'm just opening accounts here and there. And you don't test ten at one time. No, no, not at all. So right, main bank is Ally for personal. Main bank is Chase for business. And actually, I've been testing SoFi's money and SoFi Invest. I actually really like what they're doing. Now it's mm-hmm. the intro stage of what they're doing, but I like testing things. So I'll open the account, I'll play around with it, I'll deposit a check, and I'll do certain functions and go, this is cool. I could actually recommend this to someone. Or if someone comes in with this, which is more likely that we're mm-hmm. working with the client and they have SoFi, I know how the infrastructure works. I know what the app looks like. I can tell them, hey, go here, make sure this setting is turned on or off or whatever it may be. Sure. So I, I like to kind of nerd out on this. But Two banks, I can understand. Third bank, because you have your business, I get it, but not. Okay, so, so I'm still doing okay. All right. I, I mean, maybe. We'll <laughs> leave it up for debate. Yeah, we'll wait for the emails. Yeah. So before we jump into our journal club, I wanted to highlight something because I think this was really funny. We had exchanged before we were recording this, some tweets about people telling other people in your network that they're not necessarily entertaining because of one reason or another. And I was like, well, funny, Jimmy, I got something from someone that said, Ryan, been binging on your podcast at the gym lately. Doesn't exactly pump me up for a workout, but it did educate me. Two birds, one stone, I guess. Not, and I said, well, I'm happy that I'm not motivating, like question mark. I think I'm taking this as a compliment. And she responded, well, not for working out at least, but the money stuff, hell yeah. So you know who you are. Thank you for your comment. I appreciate it. It made me laugh. Look, this stuff might not be the funniest and sexiest and, you know, all the the good stuff that you're getting out of entertainment, but we're here to help educate so you don't get screwed and you can understand your finances. You can conquer them and feel comfortable and confident. So thank you for that. But let's jump into our journal club and we're going to be talking about concentration risk. And this was on semi-retiredmd.com, which we both know that they're awesome people. Mm -hmm. And they came out with this. And I thought concentration risk was going to go a totally different direction when I saw the title. It was surprising. Yeah. But so who they are, semi-retired MD, they basically, they're both physicians, but they have a huge 
real estate following. They love real estate syndications and different deals. They've got a great course. And they wrote this article on concentration risk and they boiled it down to five things. So Jimmy, why don't you lead us off with their article? Yeah. So the idea here for for this article is concentration risk, which I agree with you. I kind of thought it was going a different direction, but what they're talking about is in terms of streams of income. So most physicians, I can't put a statistics to that. So maybe I shouldn't say that many physicians have one income stream. Like they, you know, that's all they have is, is their one income stream as a physician, they're earning a W2 income, uh, or maybe it's 1099 if they're, if they're doing that kind of work, but that's it. And so if that went away and they didn't have another income stream, then they would have too much concentration from their income sources in that one area. And so if you imagine a, a table, it would be a table with one leg. And when it goes out, the table falls. And so their idea, semi-retired MD's idea here is that you should have multiple income streams and those income streams should be substantial enough that uh, if one leg falls, that the table will still stand. And so their argument here in this article is that real estate should be one of those income streams. And that if you don't have that, uh, or at least some other income streams that are that are you know large enough, then you'd be too concentrated in their opinion. Yeah, and I you know I, I there's pros and cons to this strategy, right? Like just being in real estate. I think I've mentioned on the show like my whole family's in real estate, and my brother and I are the oddballs. My brother works at Google. Obviously, you guys know what I do, but everyone else in my entire family is a developer. They sell it, whether they're leasing it, the commercial or residential, like. They're everywhere. That's how they've made all their their money. That's how they've made their living. And in reality, real estate has created the most millionaires out of any profession or anything. So I can understand where they're going with this. Now, Mm. they've broken out five things and we'll play good cop, bad cop. And for the record, I love both of these people. They're extremely nice, but let's play good cop, bad cop. So number one, they said it can be completely passive if you choose. Yeah. I mean, I think that what they're getting at here is that when you have renters that are living in the the real estate that you own, it's passive income. They're paying their, you know, their monthly rental money and it's coming into your pocket. It could be more active upfront, but then eventually you just have this passive income that's coming in. And that is one way to to get to financial independence is if you have enough money come in that it can pay for your monthly expenses, you're technically financially independent. And there are other people that kind of follow the school of thought, but it can be passive, which is what they get to. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And I, I like the idea. So one, nothing is ever fully passive. Like there's some amount of due diligence, effort, research, building the process, procedure, whatever it may be. And then over time it can become more passive, Sure, but let's not kid ourselves. Nothing is truly passive. There's no, Hey, I'm going to send you, I'm going to buy this property, do nothing, and I'm always going to get that mailbox money. doesn't happen, but it can be passive over time. So I will mostly agree with this one. Okay. Number two, building up your portfolio isn't a full-time job. So I completely agree with this one. You do not need to have a full-time background in real estate in order to buy and invest in real estate, whether you're doing syndications, you know, apartment, uh, your own type of, you know, duplexes, quads, tries, whatever, or single family homes. Like you don't have to do this full time. We own real estate ourselves. I love doing it. It's not passive, but it doesn't require more than, you know, let's call it a couple hours a month to, you know, make sure that, you know, have my calls with the property management team, make sure everything looks good, you know, do my bookkeeping and accounting and keep it up to date. I probably spend two hours a month just reviewing what's going on. Now, if something breaks, it's going to take some time. Maybe I have to work with some vendors or whatever it is, but it's not a full-time job. 
Well, you know, I think that even I've talked to some people that do a lot more real estate than I do, which is none, by the way. But those people have these these lists of you know vendors that they work with for various stuff. So like if the you know the washer and dryer breaks, they know that they're supposed to go to this vendor, and they know that if it costs more than fifty percent of what it's worth, that they should just buy a new one. And if they buy a new one, they should buy this one, and then that one, and that one based on stock. And so they've worked out a system where it kind of remains a limited you know take on your time because they they have a system in place that allows that that to happen. But uh, I guess we're going good cop, good cop on this one. That's fine. But that did take effort and it wasn't passive to build that extensive research and knowledge out. Hmm. The income, number three, the income is significant and tax-free. Well, you know, I think that what semi-retired MD is trying to say here is that uh, there are some major tax benefits to to real estate, whether you are you know rolling it into an exchange or you are depreciating the property, there are certainly tax benefits that real estate has. And and they make the argument here in this article that $200,000 in real estate is equivalent to $300 potentially from a salary income because of those uh, tax benefits. Yeah. And they're talking about full-time realtor status. So one of them decided to cut back and not work any clinical. The other one still does. And then they can essentially have more favorable tax laws, which sound awesome. And that is very small percentage of the population can actually do that. But yeah, there's there's other favorable, even if you didn't go that course, there's favorable tax treatments to real estate. I, I don't likely see those going away. I mean, who knows what's mm-hmm. going to happen with our, our tax structure and everything <laughs> like that. I, we were supposed to get on a postcard and this like all of a sudden blew up and became really hard to file taxes. I, I thought so, we weren't going to talk politics, right? Oh man, killing me. All right. <laughs> Number four, anybody can do it. I don't like to limit people. So you know, I'm a big believer that that people can do pretty much whatever they want if they spend the time to learn. And I think that I know plenty of people who are busy physicians that do real estate and are successful at it and have properties and, and renters and have passive rental income coming through. So yeah, I, I pretty much agree that anybody could do it. Yeah. So I will highlight someone who I highly respect and it's Dr. David Ruginis, but the mm-hmm. doc, Doctors Unbound podcast. Yeah. And he's, he's an anesthesiologist. He runs a successful, huge podcast and he invests in real estate and he does the most time intensive real estate, which is short-term rentals. And he's crushing it with Airbnb. So I look at this and I'm like, well, if you're a busy physician and you have the motivation and desire and the passion around it, then you can do it. But if you look at real estate and you're like, I have no intention of being a landlord. I, I don't like the concept of owning a home. I don't like the concept of taking on debt to do this. And this, all this stuff freaks me out. You're not cut out to do real estate and that's Mm -hmm. totally fine. So I think anyone can do it. Yeah. Jimmy's over here pointing himself. I think anyone can do it if you have the passion and dedication to learn and understand and to want to spend your time doing that. And, but the idea still stands that you should have multiple income streams. Real estate just happens to be their, their mojo. Yeah. That's, that's what they want. There's other things. I mean, you could start a blog and become the physician philosopher, right? Start a podcast and and trust me, if he's doing it, I'm just kidding, but you could start a podcast, right? You could be financial residency, right? That's anyone can do this stuff. If you have the passion, desire, and it might not be talking finance, Mm -hmm. right? You're here learning finance. You're like, oh, I'm not an expert. That's fine. But you're an expert in something, you know, something, something that you have that you're passionate about, that you're knowledge about that can help others understand that. And there's a good chance that whatever that topic is, it is less complicated than medicine. Uh, there's high, very high probability. That's the case. Mm, Number five, there is no cap on how much you can make. I mean, 
this sounds great to me. I would love to have no cap on the amount of money I could make. Sky's yeah, the limit. I think, yeah, I think that they're saying, you know, hey, this is something you could scale. So, you know, you buy a house and I, I don't think they specifically go into this in the article, but, you know, you, could, you buy a house and then you buy a duplex and a triplex and then you eventually own an apartment building that has 50 units. And I mean, you could certainly scale things in real estate. And I know people that have done that and they've been highly successful at it. So if there is a cap, it's so far away that most people never see it. Yeah. And, and you don't even have to scale up to apartments. You could literally just keep adding doors or keep adding, you know, individual sure. single, single family, family homes, homes. Yeah, have 10, 20 of them and end up doing that. Now, where I th- think we need to give the disclaimer at the end here is concentration risk. What you don't want to do is jump from where you're at now into the, oh, I'm going to invest all in real estate boat. And I'm speaking of this from personal experience, not from my wife and I, but from my family. They've made mm-hmm. their money in real estate. This is what they do. They are highly concentrated in one spot and their one leg is real estate. And I see semi-retired MD. Yes, they're still one practicing, one isn't, but they've got two legs. And I know they're trying to build out the other legs Mm -hmm. um, as they go, but don't take this as, well, real estate's the only way to do it. No, it's a way to do it and it's a really good way to do it, but building a business could be another way. And it, you know, that business could be anything, could be online, could be brick and mortar, could be whatever coaching business, you name it. It could be anything. The idea here though, is to not be concentrated on one income stream and to have many income streams. So I love the idea of this, obviously nerd out on some real estate stuff, but I'm going to make sure that we tag semi-retired MD on social media and you can find it there. Make sure you're following us at financial residency Jimmy, what's your social? At Fizz Philosopher, because it was too long. P-H-Y-S Philosopher. Well, that's confusing, but we'll try to link to Jimmy too. No, You're we welcome. <laughs> all right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed our discussion and our journal club. Please share the podcast with other physicians so we can help them take control over their finances. Have a great rest of the week. See you guys on Friday. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>